This is the back room of politics, it's called, and the difference being it's by an actual politician rather than, you know, journalists and pundits, as we're probably more accustomed to on uh, podcasts about politics. This is um, National's long-serving MP, Jerry Brownlee. This is the second episode that's just come out um, this past week. The first episode, kind of notable because the first guest was Green Party MP Golras Garaman. Um, you know, not exactly a political ally of Jerry Brownlee or the National Party, quite the reverse, but uh, he told the Herald that he wanted to have a conversation with her to show that the pair were closer than people might think, and there are a lot of points of common agreement. Um, in fact, he, he told the Herald, we agree climate change is an issue that New Zealand must take seriously. And um, I was reminded of this because of all the political to and fro about the farmers' protest um, last Friday, the so-called howl of protest. Um, but the second episode of Jerry Brownlee's podcast was also dedicated to climate change. Um, it was a chat with the uh, Climate Change Commission's Dr Rod Carr, and here's how Jerry Brownlee introduced it. But I'm joined today by Dr Rod Carr, who is chairman of the Climate Change Commission. The commission was established in late uh, 2019 uh, with broad support across the House uh, because there is an understanding that this is a problem not only for New Zealand uh, and not only uh, for uh, our individual communities, the way we live, uh, but internationally as well. And we do have to do our bit because we are a trading nation and to be any kind of a pariah in the world would be very bad for our um, well-being, uh, let alone our prosperity. Yeah, and, and after that, uh, the pair uh, chatted, you know, very amiably and in quite a lot of detail for about 35, 40 minutes um, about the whole topic of climate change. That sounds like such a different climate policy message to the one his party's been putting out. <laughs> well, yeah, well, it is a different attitude to the to the conversation because when Dr. Rod Carr released the Climate Commission's big report recently about cutting our carbon emissions uh, by 2050, um, the National Party MPs who hold those portfolios of, of environment and climate, Scott Simpson and Stuart Smith, they challenged uh, the Commission over the cost of it all. It could be done for less than 1% of GDP and so on. And um, like almost every national MP, Jerry Brownlee joined last week's groundswell howl of protest uh, demonstrations around the country, all to put pressure on the government. That was their party's position. So broadly, um, all these national MPs were backing the party's line that um, the farmers had had too much change, too much of the burden, too much of the cost of meeting uh, the government's climate change policies was, was going to fall on them and, and that farmers deserved a bit of a break. Um, so here was actually the video that uh, Jerry Brownlee put onto social media from the groundswell protest he attended. And this was just a day after uh, releasing that podcast with Dr. Carr. It's about the pace of change that's being inflicted on the rural communities in New Zealand. And I think also it's symptomatic of a feeling that many New Zealanders have that we're being asked to do a lot of things without actually being told why or how or what would be the best way for us to participate in change, if in fact we want it. So I'm happy to support these farmers. I think they're great guys. And the sign kind of says it all. Without farmers, you'll be hungry, naked and sober. <laughs> so there he is, Jerry Brown, pretty much backing the party line getting in behind the farmers as the, as the party line w would have it. But it kind of sounded to me a bit like his heart wasn't really in it. And if you listen to that podcast, that's a fascinating thing. He uh, had a much more nuanced position on the whole thing. I mean, Jerry Brownlee is, I don't know, shall we say, he's well known for his fractious relationship with the media, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Heavily critical, insulting even at times. Definitely, one could say, chompy. Yep. Is he more comfortable creating his own media? 
Well, that's what I wonder. That's possibly what this reveals and, and possibly why I'm thinking maybe more politicians uh, might enjoy making their own podcast. I mean, he made the point talking to Dr. Carr in that podcast about overlapping laws, the need for a review of all legislation to tidy things up about the electricity system, you know, still relying on coal and gas um, EV uptakes and incentive, all this sort of stuff that I've, you know, he's not the climate spokesperson, he's the foreign affairs spokesperson. But, you know, fascinating to hear an experienced senior politician, you know, when he's not trying to deliver sound bites. And of course, he's got the editorial control of his own podcast, but having a real discussion, two people of of experience that that both, as it turns out, really know their topics. And it made me think of... um, a column in the Herald last weekend. Uh, this is Simon Wilson, their senior writer. He chided National under Judith Collins for not living up to their current slogan, demand the debate. You know, he was saying, look, give us proper ideas, proper plans, some indication of nuanced thinking. Simon wrote, who knows if they put up some plans, you know, we could actually debate them rather than having this reactionary point scoring politics. Um, and, you know, I think that that podcast of Jerry Brownlee's for what it's worth, or probably not a lot of people have heard it, but I think that is an effort to kind of do that. Is Jerry Brownlee the only MP doing his own podcast? Well, not quite. Um, actually, the first one, it turns out, from um, picking the brains shamelessly of our gallery staff was Kerry Allen and Chloe Swarbrick did a joint one in 2018. Um, it was called Authorised By, but it didn't last very long. It was just an attempt to shed light on how Parliament works and engage with a new audience and so on. But Green co-leader James Shaw is quite uh, experienced at this now. He's into the second series of his podcast, uh, which is called uh, What Comes After, What Comes Next. That's the title of it. And his is all about environmental stuff, you know, more predictably than perhaps Jerry Brownlee's. Uh, but he talks to mostly big names overseas like Naomi Klein and um, a recent one with David Axelrod, who's uh, a former uh, advisor to President Obama. And recently he did a, a pretty lightweight podcast interview of his own with uh, Jacinda Ardern for his podcast, which I think is hosted by uh, CNN. But I first stumbled on James Shaw's one um, because I listened to a chat he had last year with, um, with, you know, the musical producer and wizard uh, Brian Eno. And um, it's really, yeah, it's pretty esoteric. It's actually quite a hard listen, I have to say, because the topic of it's supposed to be how art and music can contribute to climate change. And you're thinking, "Mm, okay, that sounds a bit left field. Um, In one part, you know, Brian Eno talked at some length. I was going to take a clip out of this, but I thought it would just be a bit mean. So Brian Eno is talking about Bauhaus concepts and how these sort of minimalism could help drive climate change politics and thinking. And, you know, James Shaw kind of says to him, oh, actually, look, I have to tell you, look, I'm a career politician, I don't see a lot of music, uh, or, or, you know, whether it's avant-garde or not, um, you, know, you know, really coming into this debate or into our daily lives or intersecting with politics. And, uh, yeah, it got slightly awkward because uh, Brian Eno kept on throwing him uh, the names of certain quite um, obscure um, compositions which he had to admit he hadn't heard and so yeah the discussion didn't didn't quite work but an interesting idea anyway. Well significant movements, art movements like the Bauhaus, maybe James Shaw didn't really want to talk or reveal how he was applying Bauhaus concepts but anyway moving on <laughs> should more politicians do podcasts is that the thing? Well that's what it got me thinking I mean the Jerry Brownlee one is genuinely interesting the James Shaw one I found a bit obscure but look he, he covers his own specialist area and does talk to significant and interesting people um, but you know not if they're just propaganda, because now that podcasts are increasingly important, I begin to think, well, why don't more politicians actually do them? They love to control their message and, you know, they can talk at length about whatever they like. But one interesting thing is I note in that just in the cover artwork for James Shaw's one and Jerry Brownlee's more recent one, um, 
There is the parliamentary logo and crest and a little authorization message authorized by a Minister for Climate Change, James Shaw. So I am kind of curious. I don't know for sure. I have to look at it. But whether that means they are actually using not only their time, but, you know, our money or parliamentary budgets to um, to fund their own their own media. So, yeah, that would be an interesting. It wouldn't cost them a whole lot, I imagine, to do, but it is interesting. And then I guess some people would say, well, look, if they've got time to make podcasts, they've got time to do, you know, more uh, engaging and constructive politics. Well, it's a good question. I mean, podcasts, let's just say they do take time to put together and one does wonder if they have teams to do it. Mm. Anyway, I'll leave that to you to find out. Let's go to your next topic, some changes in talk radio. What's that about? Yeah, well, with Karen uh, last, in fact, no, on the Media Watch programme weekend before last, I was a bit mean. Uh, News Talk ZB have done a good thing, which is, reinstate a local morning show for the Wellington region, which we used to have uh, here in Wellington, where I am, and a new host, Nick Mills, um, and producer Rosie Gordon, who people might have know as a reporter from uh, News Hub on television. Um, so they're, they're now doing the new show, and I played a few bits from their um, day one of their new show when it launched because things didn't really go all that smoothly, which was a bit mean. But I did make a point of saying they use the Herald's reporters and NZME's reporters here in Wellington cover issues quite well. So it is a lively and and useful addition to Wellington issues on the radio. And uh, seeing as I was mean to them when they started, there was a nice bit last Friday, and this is where Nick Mills, the host, actually met up with one of his callers from a previous day from the Hutt Valley, a woman called Gloria. And now she lives alone uh, and said that she was anxious about getting um, the vaccine shot. So Nick Mills went out um, up to Hutt Valley, met, met her and took her to the Heratonga Church uh, where she was getting it done. So here's a, just a little bit of uh, Nick Mills taking Gloria to get her vaccine shot. Did they explain that to you? Yes, now, you, you, you You're not you know, 19 and you're going to be staying on your own tonight. Do you feel okay about that after having the injection? Of course I am. I'm fine. I really am. I'm a positive thinker. I know you are. So it was quite nice as a wee video to go with that that they put up on the ZB website. But nice to hear a talk host, talk back host, you know, actually getting out of the studio, you know, meeting the people in the, in the community. And it wasn't, you know, downtown urban Wellington, just outside the doorstep of the studio. It was, uh, you know, quite quite a way out in, um, in, in, the, in the Hutt Valley there. So while Nick Mills is a new voice on talk radio, some familiar voices are on their way out. Yeah, Phil Gifford is one. He's stepped down from his ZB show with Simon Barnett that they've done for, I think, a couple of years now. That's in the afternoon. So he's been replaced by another local voice uh, out of Christchurch, actually, James Daniels, uh, is, is stepped in to fill that alongside Simon Barnett. But... Um, they were interesting. I liked their show because they had a sort of more gentle, grievance-free style of talkback, which which they're still doing, and, and Simon and James are still um, driving that. Um, and it doesn't sort of seek to rack up the callers quite so much. They actually take a bit of time to talk about callers who are saying silly things um, or, you know, spreading, uh, saying things that aren't quite true. They will pull them up, but talk to them a bit more gently. Um, and I do I do like the way they do it. But uh, Phil, on the occasion of stepping down, was guest on the weekend interview show on ZB uh, Real Life on Sunday. And he told the host, um, John Cowan, that their approach had been a success because uh, he said they'd been, you know, number one for the commercial radio market ratings in the Auckland area for their afternoon show where uh, I don't think that the network had been all that strong previously. So, you know, their their more toned down approach, if you like, had worked, he believed. But he also told John um, about, you know, how being ratings driven on commercial radio these days is a bit different. 
advertising sales reps, they don't actually spit at your feet, but you get that impression, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, first of all, you're in survey the whole year now yeah. before you at specific right? times. And you could always tell when radio stations were in surveys because they started giving Their money prices. away. <laughs> yeah, they give money away, big prizes. But now... Radio, all radio stations are in survey all the time, and I think they get results about every couple of months. Yeah. So it's as, it's as regular as that, John. No, yeah. but the, I can remember the, the tensions building oh, yeah. up when the ratings were coming out Heck and yes, the parties. Yeah. Of- yeah, it doesn't seem that long ago that radio stations were doing that routinely, weren't they? You know, five-figure sums of money, you know, to, to, to give away just to bump bump up the audience figures when they knew that the surveyors were putting together all those surveys and getting the information out that would go to advertisers. Um, so nowadays it's a bit of a different story because, you know, technology and techniques have meant it's more of a, a rolling effort. So I guess the, the sort of tyranny of ratings is, um, you know, up, maybe up the sweat rate a bit for hosts because they know they're always being analysed in commercial terms about just how many people they're, they're pulling in. And another change that could be telling it, Magic Talk? Yes, that's right. That was just announced today. Um, so Magic Talk, having a bit of a struggle, they're not doing so well in the ratings. And, and recently, um, it was formerly known as Radio Live and an effort to um, provide a bit of an alternative and talk radio. But they say their long-serving overnight host, Tony Amos, uh, in their words, can now enjoy some sleep as he's leaving Magic Talk overnights. And they say they will be replaying Instead, everything you missed from the previous day. And I don't think that's a good sign because uh, Magic Talk already does that uh, in the weekends uh, to fill these kind of yawning gaps across the morning instead of having a host. Um, In some parts, they, or through the afternoon too, they just replay uh, interviews from the, the, the previous day's AM show and things like that, which, you know, of course, if you've heard it already, it doesn't make for great radio. And I don't know if the people who are listening overnight and you know, who, who would have enjoyed listening to other, you know, warm bodies on the air or might have enjoyed ringing up and having what could be pretty lengthy chats on the overnight hours with the talk host. Um, but, you know, radio, uh, sorry, Magic Talk, when it transitioned out of being Radio Live into Magic Talk, some of its evening slots just cross over into the Magic Music, you know, the hits of 50s, 60s, 70s, I think it is, so they're not even trying to do talk programs at certain parts of the day, so taking out the, the live overnight talk back, I think, and replacing it with replayed stuff from the day before, um, yeah, could be a telling sign that they're, you know, losing their commitment to keeping it a, a kind of live talk station. Right. Well, each to their own. Let's go to speaking of ratings, that is. Last month we talked about the launch of GB News, billed as an alternative to shake up elitist British broadcasting. How's that been going? Yeah, that's right. Um, It didn't go well at the start and it had a lot of technical problems. It looked terrible, uh, sounded terrible, and literally there were guests and reporters that you could not be heard. Um, But uh, they were crowing about their ratings being better than the BBC's 24-hour news channel, a sort of channel people dip in and out of navigating its high audiences at the best of times, but also the commercial television broadcaster, the ITV, they had an equivalent, you know, rolling TV news channel. And the new channel, GB News, was getting more than that. Now, they launched saying, the critics say, this is going to be Fox News for the UK, uh, you know, sort of grievance television and so on. But um, they insisted it's not going to be that. We're going to broadcast unheard or underserved voices. Um, But lately, the ratings have fallen to zero uh, after less than a month on air. Um, in some cases, an audience too small for surveyors to detect. So uh, they've even dumped some of their hosts who were not broadcast experts. They took a punt on some, um, you know, like a, for example, a woman who won The Apprentice UK was tried out as a host. That one hasn't worked, so her show's been cut. And they've turned to Nigel Farage, the uh, former 
leader of the UKIP party and arch-Brexiteer uh, to launch a show. So the first sign of trouble saying they're not, you know, a politi- they're saying they're politically neutral, not a Fox News sort of channel. Um, yeah, they've, they've turned to Nigel Farage as a host. So I don't think that's the way they planned it. Goodness. Well, and so why have their viewers deserted them? Well, quite frankly, the critics saying it's not a good watch. But part of this this thing, they launched with this quite heavy uh, hitting, um, well, he's still there, Andrew Neil, a figure from the BBC and from uh, the Times newspapers. He's got a lot of political credibility. He got right behind this saying the British media is out of touch. It is elitist and we will not be that. Uh, but the problem is he was on this anti-woke crusade. So we will expose wokeness wherever it exists. But it turns out there's only so much anti-woke diatribe that, that viewers can stomach. And the people who are a bit turned off by woke stuff, it doesn't mean they want the same diet of that all the time, or they, you know, that the, the answer to their prayers is, is Nigel, Nigel Farage. And certainly, you know, critics looking at this saying, like, it just shows you how hard it is to do good broadcast TV. They had one industry pro, a guy called John McAndrew, as their director of programs, who'd worked for BBC, Sky News. He knew what he was doing. Apparently, he's quit after reportedly refusing to dial up the culture wars aspect of the channel. So, yeah, they've really hit uh, hard times, it seems.